Hi, everyone, and welcome to Dark as Hell. I'm your host, Maggie. We arrived back to our story about Lacey Peterson and the night in question when it felt like it really began for the majority of people. December 24th, 2002. Lacey, who was due to give birth in February, had allegedly last been seen by her husband, Scott, that morning at around 9.30. Now, however, by 6 p.m. on Christmas Eve night, only one thing was clear. Lacey was missing, and no one knew what had happened to her. Let's get ready to get dark as hell. search for Lacey came together incredibly quickly, even in spite of the fact that it was Christmas Eve night, or maybe because of that fact, the news about Lacey being missing spread like wildfire. Almost immediately after Ron, Lacey's stepfather, called 911 to report his pregnant stepdaughter being missing, people were gathering at Isla Loma Park, the place Lacey had allegedly been intending to walk to with Mackenzie, their dog, that morning. At 6 p.m., Sharon, Lacey's mother, called Scott to ask him to meet her at the park. All plans of the Christmas Eve dinner that she and Ron were supposed to hold that evening were completely out the window. A phone tree was instead starting to form. As people who had planned to attend began hearing the news, calling other would-be attendees, in order to both inform and organize them. Ron decided to stay at the house so that he could wait for the responding officers from the 911 call that he had placed at 5.48. Sharon, though, she was heading to the park, where she initially thought Lacey might still be. Lacey had shared with her mother just a few weeks before that she had had an incident at the park, an incident that led Sharon to believe that her daughter might still be at Isla Loma, though incapacitated. From her later testimony, Sharon shared, quote, it was the very end of October, or very beginning of November, because she'd called me. She had told me that she had been walking in the park. She started to feel dizzy, and then she started vomiting. And she was really embarrassed, because the maintenance people from the park were, like, following her along, cleaning up after her. She was trying to get home as quickly as possible, because she was afraid that she was going to pass out. With that in mind, Sharon worried that Lacey might have become sick, fainted, or... Otherwise, wasn't able to get home that day because something relating to her pregnancy woes had prevented her from doing so. When Sharon and family friend Sandy Rickard arrived, she was met by Scott. Or at least, Scott's figure. Again, from her testimony, quote, Sandy and I drove down into the park, parked the car. I got out of the car and I was running all around through that area and I was screaming her name and I just kept yelling her name. The lights were on in the park in that area. The outer areas weren't lit, but I was running all through that area that I could. I was looking in, I remember looking in trash cans and then Lacey's neighbors came to the park. Scott was walking along closer to the river, looking towards the river to the left, and he had the leash and Mackenzie was in his right hand. I kept calling out his name and he 
never did turn to acknowledge that I was calling out to him. I was yelling his name. I was yelling out to let him know, here we are, we're over here. Scott never did acknowledge that I was yelling his name. But I remember my nephew, Zachary, going by me and going right up to Scott. And that's when he acknowledged that anybody was there. Minutes later, by 6.04 p.m., the police had also arrived at the park. Officer John Evers was one of the first responding officers to arrive. He was also the first police officer to question Scott that night. Evers testified that, quote, Well, in a nutshell, Scott told me that he'd been fishing all day in the Bay Area. I asked him, well, when is the last time you saw your wife? He said this morning before he left, and that she was getting ready to walk the dog. And she generally walked, she went to the park, and that's where she was going. He said that when he got home, she wasn't there. By this time, more and more people had arrived at the park, alerted to the news of Lacey's unexplained disappearance through the Christmas Eve party phone tree. Gwen Kempel, Sharon's first cousin, was also hosting a Christmas Eve party herself, and Ron had called her and her husband Harvey between 6.15 and 6.30 to tell them the news, and essentially asked them to turn their holiday party into a search party down at East La Loma. It was later reported that anywhere between 70 to 90 people spent a handful of hours searching for Lacey in the park that night, up until a helicopter equipped with heat detection technology swept over the park from 8.30 to 9.45 p.m. But as all of these people were scouring through the dark wooded areas of the park, running into pockets of homeless people and searching through the embankments above the river that winds through the area, Scott Peterson was no longer at the park. No, he was back at 523 Covina Ave. Because by 620 that night, police decided that they wanted to have a look around. They wanted to see what exactly the home Lacey Peterson might have disappeared from looked like. There were three police officers in attendance of the first walkthrough conducted at the Peterson house that night. Officer John Evers, Officer Matthew Spurlock, and Officer Derek Letzinger. Spurlock and Letzinger were the first two officers inside of the house that night, as they conducted a walkthrough to, quote, basically determine if there were any signs of suspicious circumstances of the house, any kind of evidence that we could see as to if there had been a crime occurred. As Letzinger later testified, Spurlock detailed the first walkthrough like this, quote, As we went into the house, we entered through the courtyard, kind of a sidewalk. As we entered through, I noticed that there was a bucket with two mops in it, and there was some moisture around the bucket, as if it had just been recently used and the moisture hadn't dried up yet. What continued on through, the door was unlocked. I noticed that most of the lights in the house were on. As we went inside to clear the house, I think Officer Evers was kind of posted to keep security on the hallway. Myself and Officer Letzinger kind of went in this direction. As we were going through this direction, there's like a small like table or something sitting in this area. I noticed there was a phone book. It was opened up to a color page. There was some pizza, looked like a vegetarian type pizza, several pieces missing, an open bottle of ranch sitting next to that. Continued on through the kitchen area and into the living room. 
Along the north wall, there's a door that opens up into the backyard area, side yard area. At the base of the door, there was a rug. The rug appeared to be pushed up against the base. As we continued clearing, there's a washer-dryer type setup in the south corner, and on top of the washer and dryer were somewhat appeared to be balled-up white towels that were still wet, with a lot of sand and dirt within it. After clearing this area, we came back, cleared the rest of the bedrooms, one at a time, and then came back out. There were two things that stuck out to Officer Letzinger that night. The scrunched-up rug and the open pizza box. According to later testimony, quote, he saw the pizza box on the counter still with some pieces in it and a rug scrunched accordion style against the door jamb of the door in the living room. He noticed several dirty wet rags on the washing machine. The rest of the room, the rest of the house almost, was like a model home. Everything was in place. The chairs and rugs were all set. The magazines on the coffee table were all laid out. He said that's what made the rug and the rags stick out. The second walkthrough was conducted with Scott present. So he could point out or call attention to anything that might have looked out of place to one of the people who actually lived in the house. Apparently, as the officers and Scott went room to room, Scott maintained a cool and calm demeanor, said that nothing was out of place, nothing looked odd, everything seemed normal. As they walked through the bedroom with the clothes hamper, though, Spurlock was surprised by how full it was, and he asked Scott what he'd been doing with his day. This is when things start to get a little hinky. The hinkiness started with this conversation. According to Spurlock's testimony, quote, I asked Mr. Peterson if he had been working all day, and Mr. Peterson stated no, that he'd gone fishing in the bay. I asked Mr. Peterson if, if he could tell me roughly what time he went fishing. He really didn't give me a responsive time, just kind of shuffled off the question. Didn't really answer. I asked Mr. Peterson if, what, exactly kind of fishing he was doing. What kind of fish he was fishing for today. And at that point, there was a pause. He hesitated in answering me. He, he had this blank look on his face for a second or so. His eyes shifted a little bit, and he kind of mumbled some stuff. But again, blew off my question. Didn't really give me an answer. I then asked Mr. Peterson if he could maybe describe what he was using as far as bait or lure. And again, I got the same, same type of response. Kind of the blank stare, shifting of the eye kind of thing. He just really couldn't give me an answer again. And then something clicked. And he, he said, I was using a silver lure. And he gave me a hand gesture of about seven to eight inches in length. After the conversation, we pretty much finished looking through the house, and Scott was asked to go outside at that time. And he walked from, from the sitting room area, front door area, through the front door, and not closing the door all the way. Kind of left a, like a seven-inch to five-inch gap where the door was opened. I followed, loosely followed him at a distance, went to the front door. As he was stepping out the front door and onto the sidewalk area, I heard what sounded like a cuss word. Sounded like the word fuck. And it came through what sounded like gritted teeth. 
like I said, things are only starting to get a little hinky. The majority of the people involved with searching the park for Lacey would leave the park at about 8.30 to allow the FLIR equipped helicopter to do its thing. But those nearest to the Roaches and Lacey and Scott had begun to congregate at the Covina Avenue house just before then. Ron and Sharon had arrived after the second walkthrough, as did the Kempels, Sharon's first cousin and her husband, who were hosting another Christmas Eve party that night. And what Ron, Sharon, and Harvey Kempel witnessed that night only increased the hinky vibes. Hinky is going to be the word of the day for this episode. Sharon, being, you know, a motherly figure, was looking for her son-in-law that night when they arrived at Covina Avenue. She testified that, quote, I was walking over to give him a hug because I felt that, you know, we were all upset and I knew his family wasn't here and we'd always been close, so I wanted to just console him and myself for that matter. And as I walked up to him, I was never able to do that because he kept kind of angling like away from me so that we never had eye contact. Eventually, though, again, after the second walkthrough, Scott did have a chance to circle up with some of the family members and discuss what all had taken place that day. From my understanding of the transcripts from the trial, Scott seemed to have had three different variations of this conversation with those same three people. Sharon, Harvey Kemple, and Ron. Sharon, we'll let her go first. Quote, I asked him what Lacey was doing or what her plans were for the day. And he told me that she'd planned on going to the store and then coming home to make gingerbread and walking the dog. I asked where he had been. He told me, he told me fishing. And I asked where he was fishing. He said Berkeley. Ron had a similar conversation with Scott, though his ended on a bit of a sour note, it seemed. Quote, I, we were standing out in the front under a tree and I was talking with a couple officers and Scott came walking up and I said, you know, said, hi, Scott said, hi. I said, how was your golf today? He said, no, I didn't play golf. I went fishing and I being the smart behind I am, I said, well, what time did you go fishing? And he said, oh, about nine 30. And I said, nine 30. I said, that's when I come home from fishing. That's not when I go. And he turned around and walked away. I was just kidding, but I felt bad that I had said that. Ron wouldn't speak to Scott until two or three days later, but Harvey Kemple also shared his own strange conversation with Scott that night. He testified that, quote, I was around that immediate, immediate area for just a little while, talking to other family members and other friends that had started arriving up towards their home. I went back over to Scott and I asked him where he had been. Why was Lacey down in the park by herself? Where was he? He told me he went to play golf. And I said, golf. And I immediately started heading back down to the park to find my brother that had been looking for me. When he told me he went to play golf, I learned from my wife that same evening, while I was still in the park for Lacey, that Scott told my wife that he went fishing. So I was very suspicious from the very first night. 
fishing, fishing, golf. Now, why is it that Scott can't seem to get that particular detail? And I say detail sarcastically because, like, this was allegedly what he spent the entire day doing. Why can't he seem to keep that particular detail straight? As these conversations were happening, of course, other things were also taking place. Between 7 and 8 p.m., Scott allegedly went walking through the neighborhood with his brother-in-law, Brent. But the police eventually had to tell Scott to stop wandering off like that so that they could keep an eye on him. At 8.48 p.m., Scott called Karen Service, one of their neighbors, to ask if she knew where Lacey was. As Karen later testified, quote, I said no. And he said, well, she's missing. And then something to the effect that there are people searching for her down in the park. There are helicopters and things. Because I told him I wasn't there. I was up in Repon. And I told him, well, I found Mackenzie. And then he, when I told him I had found the dog, he put me on the phone with the detective to find, to describe finding the dog. What should have been a, an innocuous conversation, this one with Karen, is one that kind of isn't. I've always thought it was a pretty big leap of Scott's thought process to immediately, upon learning Lacey's missing, to just run with the idea that it had to have happened at the park. As Redditor Internet Emu put it on a fascinating post in the Scott Peterson Reddit board, quote, in other words, one, by the time that Scott talked to Karen, the detectives were already at his house. A full search of the park was underway. Two, that means Ron had already called 911, which means Scott talked to Ron before he had any idea how the dog got into the closed gate backyard. Three, Scott was so surprised to hear that Karen found the dog that he handed the phone to a detective and asked Karen to repeat her story. It's not that Scott couldn't have assumed these things. They're not entirely unreasonable assumptions. But shouldn't he be trying to pin this down? Shouldn't he be wondering how the dog got into the backyard? Shouldn't he be thinking it's possible that Lacey was working in the yard that morning or that afternoon? How does Scott immediately jump to, quote, Lacey disappeared while walking in the park this morning and the dog came home without her? when he has no idea how or when that gate got closed. Like I asked in the first part of Lacey's story last week, how was it that Scott could have known, without seemingly a shadow of a doubt, that Lacey did go for that walk? By the way Scott told it, Lacey was getting ready to mop the already clean floors when he left that morning. She wasn't immediately preparing to take Mackenzie out. Hell, taking Mackenzie out should have been one of the last things on her list of things to do that morning, given the errand to the grocery store that she claimed she wanted to run, finishing the gingerbread, and given how uncomfortable she'd become in her pregnancy, to the point that she had gotten doctor's orders not to do any of her walking until at least late in the day after she'd eaten and hydrated enough. Knowing Lacey, as much as one can, I think the safer assumption to make would have been that she simply would have foregone taking Mackenzie for a walk up, through, and back from the park because her pregnancy was already taking so much out of her by that point. So really, why is it that Scott seemingly just 
knew Lacey had to have taken that walk that morning, especially when hearing how Karen's service found Mackenzie before 10.30. It so surprised him, all he could do was pass the phone off to one of the officers on the scene. It's just yet another strange type of reaction, one in a whole pile of increasingly strange behaviors and odd reactions. At 9.30 p.m. that night, homicide detective Alan Brocchini arrived on the scene. He first completed a quick walkthrough with Officer Evers, who pointed out the strange juxtaposition of the model home neatness of the house with the pizza box, the scrunched rug, and the still damp mop and bucket. Burkini then invited Scott back into the house, and they conducted a slower, much more detailed walkthrough together. They found Lacey's purse in one of the back bedrooms, and according to Scott, pretty much all of her identifying and personal effects were in the bag. Her ID, wallet, keys, all of it was there. Scott had already given the police permission to search the house and to look for any items that might be pieces of evidence. The next place that Burkini searched was Scott's truck and Lacey's Land Rover. According to Burkini's testimony, he, quote, looked in the Land Rover first. It was unlocked. I opened the driver's door. There was a cell phone attached to a lighter in the Land Rover. It was off. I tried to power it on. It would power on, but immediately power off with a weak or low battery. I just looked in it. It was pretty empty. I didn't get in the back, but... That was it. I just looked from the driver's door. He then took to Scott's truck. Again, from the detective's later testimony, quote, I asked Scott to unlock it. He used his remote key to unlock it. I stood on the, I looked in the back of the truck first. I stood on the back driver's side wheel, so my feet were on top of the wheel, and I was outside the truck. And I was just moving stuff around in the truck. I lifted the green toolbox lid and looked inside just kind of looking around inspecting it. I saw some umbrellas that were wrapped in a blue tarp. They were in the back of the truck, almost against the tailgate, but in the back portion of the truck. I saw another gray or tan colored tarp was just bunched up in the truck and was pushed up against the green toolbox. There was some rope, about 50 or 100 feet of black and orange nylon rope in the toolbox area. There was a bag of shotgun shells. There was some clothing. There were loose shotgun shells in the bottom of the box. When I opened the passenger door of the truck, it bumped against the Land Rover. So Scott and so Scott came over, and he had a glove in his hand. And he said, hey, I'll stand here and hold this leather glove between the door on the truck, or I'll move my truck. And I apologized and said I'd be more careful. Of course, I have to interject here because um, using a leather glove as an officer searches for any clues about where your missing pregnant wife might be. Using a leather glove to protect your paint job is obviously of the highest importance in that moment, isn't it, Scott? I digress. Burkini said that inside the trunk, quote, there was a big five sporting good bag inside the truck with two new fishing lures still in the package inside. There was a receipt in the bag indicating that I read it and copied it. It was on the 20th. Those lures and a two-day fishing license and a fishing pole were purchased at Big Five. There was some more clothing in a bag in the back seat. There was a gun in the glove compartment. 
He said that he had the gun in there for about a month from when he went hunting in Lone Pine. He forgot it was there. As Burkini had Scott talking about the gun, he quietly slipped it into his pocket to book it into evidence later. Not telling Scott that he was doing so, though, in a bid to keep Scott from becoming defensive. At 10.30 p.m. that night, the first flyers proclaiming that Lacey was missing were being printed by family friends at a local printer called Ditto's. At that time, though, Scott was busy. He was over at his warehouse with Detective Burkini and Officer Evers. They had, again, gotten permission from Scott to search not only the warehouse, but the boat. This is what Burkini testified as happening at the warehouse that night. Quote, I saw there was a computer. I had my flashlight. I saw there was a computer on the desk, and I noticed a fax on the table. At the top of the fax, I noticed a date and a time. Scott said there was no electricity. I just assumed that he was talking about the shop, I mean the warehouse. We're only walking through this little thing. I was there to look at his boat, and he said that there was no electricity. And I mean, the office was lit up real well with my flashlight. I just assumed that he was talking about the back, the bay in the back, so I believed him. I picked up the facts and I saw that it had a time on it of like 11.15, I think, or 11.30. And I said, you know, this, I asked him about the time. I said, how can you be in the, be driving to the bay and this fax be here with this time on it? He said it was New Jersey time, three hours different. And so he thought he got it and put it on the desk and read it before he went fishing. But it could have been after. He said, he just doesn't remember when. He couldn't be positive. But he said it was New Jersey time on there. I saw the boat. I saw the boat, a flatbed trailer, a forklift, and a bunch of pallets. I didn't know what it was at the time. Looked like product or fertilizer, bladders of some kind. I saw a couple of fishing poles. I saw there was water in the boat. Not a lot, but, you know, appeared obvious that it had been somewhere because there was water inside. There was a small red rope in the boat. There was a homemade anchor, a spare tire, a tackle box. That's what I remember. In the tackle box, there was a bunch of old jigs and lures and things. I took photographs and then we left. When they departed the warehouse, Burkini brought Scott to the store, the printer, which had been opened by Michelle Buer the owner of the day spa that Lacey had just visited for a wax appointment so he could verify the information on the flyer and that it was correct. Once he had done this, which was around 11.15 or 11.30 at this point, Burkini advised the friends and family searching for Lacey to head home for the night. Except for Scott. Scott's night was only just getting started. Because at midnight turning Christmas Eve into Christmas Day, Scott was brought down to the Modesto police station for his first formal interview. Now, I don't think anyone wants me to read all 29 pages of the transcript of Scott's first interview with police. So here are just some interesting tidbits that caught my eye while reviewing the whole transcript. Tidbit number one. Burkini questions Scott and saying, uh, you know, about what time did you leave Modesto? Scott answers, 
gosh, I don't know. I, you know, extrapolate what time I got there. You know, noon is that right? Burkini. Yeah, it was, uh, no, one. Scott, which one is it there? You know it has two times. Referring to the ticket he received from the marina. Burkini. Uh, okay. Scott, which one's right? Burkini. Shit, I don't know. Tuesday time, 12.54 on December 24th, but it expires. Okay, expires 11.59 p.m. Tuesday. So you got there at 1. Scott. I got there at 1. Burkini. Yeah, about 1. Tidbit number 2. Burkini. How about the gun? How how long has that been in your car? Scott. Uh, probably a month. Took it to Lone Pine to shoot pheasants. Took it with me. Burkini. Is that your gun? Scott. Uh-huh. It's obviously seen better days, but I don't think I... I tried to shoot it once in Lone Pine, but it didn't go off. So... Tidbit number three. Burkini. Right. Well, all right. You went up there pheasant hunting? Obviously, you don't use that to shoot pheasants, though. Peterson, no, no. Burkini, have you fired it recently? Scott, my pistol? Burkini, yeah. Scott, no. Within the past year? No. Tidbit number four. Burkini, you haven't fired any guns today? Scott, no, it's been a month since the trip to Lone Pine. Burkini, would you be willing to... Well, you showered already, you said, right? Scott, mm-hmm. Burkini, when you were at Lone Pine, you said that you tried to fire that handgun once? Scott, yeah. Burkini, but what happened? Scott, just click. Burkini, just clicked? Scott, yeah, but... I ejected that round, and the second one clicked also. I think I ejected it. Yeah, I, I know I ejected it. The second one clicked. Tidbit number five. Burkini. I'm curious. Maggie was there on, uh, Maggie or Margarita, but she was there on Monday. Scott. Mm-hmm. Burkini. And obviously she did a lot of work because the house wasn't filthy. So why was your wife mopping on Tuesday morning? Scott, I don't know. Got me. Tidbit number six. Burkini, would you be willing for me to take a gunshot residue on your hands? Scott, sure, no problem. Will outboard exhaust show up as gunshot residue or would it be different? Burkini, what? Exhaust? Scott, yeah, from that outboard. Burkini, well, you showered after you said, so I'm not thinking this is your routine, but... No, it wouldn't. Tidbit number seven, Burkini. Have you guys, you guys haven't had any problems, marriage problems? Scott, no. Burkini, everything is good? Scott, mm-hmm. And tidbit number eight, Burkini. The only, just to eliminate you as a suspect, you'd be willing to take, you'd be willing to take a polygraph. Scott. Yeah, they're accurate, right? Burkini. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's it's not nothing that can be used against you, but yeah, I believe they're accurate. Scott. No, I'm, I'm willing. 
burkini. It wouldn't be now. It'd be, you know, in a day or two. It's just like the next step in this thing. Scott. Sure. No, there's a lot to unpack here, but it seems pretty clear that the Modesto police were already subscribing to an age-old belief. The husband did, or had something to do with, it. Scott having to verify his own timeline that day for when he exactly arrived at the marina, the discovery of the handgun in his car, the somewhat conflicting story of saying that he hadn't shot the gun in over a year, but he'd used it the month before on a pheasant hunting trip, allegedly unsuccessfully. The oddness that pregnant Lacey would be cleaning extensively the day after their housekeeper had come. Questions about what might show up on a gunshot residue test. Saying he was willing to take a polygraph that he never did. And of course, claiming there weren't any sort of problems in their marriage. None of it boded well especially since that last one was a blatant fucking lie. And you might be wondering, well, where is Amber during all of this? How is Scott carrying on his affair just as his wife has been reported missing? But don't be concerned, because Scott was still doing just that. The Christmas Day search for Lacey started at 3.45 a.m. with a handful of on-duty officers, and the team of officers fully scoured the entire park throughout the early morning dawn hours. At 6 a.m., an officer, David Corder, came on duty for his shift and brought in his canine officer to assist. This specific canine officer was trained in searching for human scent, it should be noted. Meanwhile, on Christmas morning... The 523 Covina Ave house had been transformed into the first iteration of the volunteer search headquarters. Lori Ellsworth and Stacy Boyers, along with other friends of Lacey's, arrived early to start handing out and posting flyers in the area to start raising awareness about their friend's disappearance. Throughout the early morning, no one is quite certain where Scott was. There are two records of him placing a phone call, one to Burkini at 9.55 and another call to him at 10.53, but reports conflict about how much Scott might have actually helped with the search on Christmas Day. What is certain is he called Amber Fry at least once that morning. According to Amber's later testimony, she was still under the assumption that Scott was in Maine with his family, so she waited to call him for the second time around later that evening. A lot took place throughout the day, too. Scott sat for his second interview from 1.30 to 4.30 p.m. with Detective Grogan, the homicide detective who had been assigned full-time to cover the case. Grogan has since stated that he asked Scott specifically if he, or even if Lacey, had engaged in an extramarital affair, but he claims that Scott said no. I say claims because, for whatever reason, that interview wasn't recorded. The search for Lacey in the early afternoon became a massive one, including over 30 officers walking shoulder to shoulder, trained professionals checking the deeper spots of water in the Dry Creek River, canine units, and even officers on horseback. But it was also a futile search as well. There was no sign of Lacey. The first press conference about Lacey's case took place during Christmas Day as well, with Detective Burkini stating, quote, police say that they do not believe Lacey decided to leave without contacting her family. That is completely out of character for her. 
The press conference ended with the announcement that there was a $25,000 reward for information leading to Lacey's safe return. After being released from his second interview, there were several people in the Covenant house when Scott arrived back. His parents were there, as was Karen Servas, Renee Tomlinson, and Renee's husband, all having dinner. Stacey Boyers also popped in after five to bring a picture of Lacey to Renee when she noticed something odd. Quote, I looked in the living room and Scott was vacuuming in front of the laundry room. And I was like, what's he doing? It's not that big of a spot. I just asked what he was doing. And he turned around and said, I can't keep the house clean enough. And he just kept vacuuming. It was about here that Scott's phone activity resumed for the day. At 6.30 p.m. or so, Scott called Burkini with a strange question. According to Burkini's testimony, quote, he wanted to know how the search was going in Dry Creek. I told him that we had a team of officers in there that searched all night, did a grid search all night. We brought in fresh officers in the morning and redid the whole thing of the park grid search in the daytime. We had three dog teams in there. We'd use a helicopter with a FLIR, which is like a heat sensor to look in there. We also had horses coming in. Then he wanted to know if we were using cadaver dogs. I said I hadn't considered Lacey dead yet, so no, we weren't using them. Cadaver dogs, just to be clear, differ from regular canine dogs because cadaver dogs are trained to detect decaying or dead human flesh. Scott finished his conversation with Burkini, and a while later, he finally returned Amber's Christmas Day message. Again, Amber was still under the assumption that Scott was across the country, not just across a few different counties. Quote, the conversation was, it was about eight or nine sometime in my time. There was a time difference. So I believed it was later for him in Maine. And they were, I guess, getting ready to go to bed is what he was telling me. I heard a woman's voice in the background. And he said his mother was coming down and came, I guess, that she was going to sit beside him. And the woman had said something. He said that he was having discussions or he was talking. And then there was another discussion, not to me on the phone. And then when he returned back to me, he said that he felt he felt bad because his mother had asked if he could sit down. And he told her no. He said that she had a sad look on her face. And I felt bad that he told her that she couldn't sit down next to him. And what I recall before the conversation ended, we were talking for some reason about children's songs. And the particular song that we were talking about was a nursery rhyme about five little ducks that go out to play. And that was something he said when we saw each other again. That was the first thing he wanted me to do was to sing that song for him. I fucking tell you, the pathological degree of compartmentalization is just so astounding in this moment. Your pregnant wife is missing, and you're placing calls to your mistress talking about nursery rhymes and planning your next date? I can't breathe. The next four days were filled with a lot of activity. On December 26th, a few different shifts came about for key locations in the search and investigation for Lacey. While the command center was headquartered at the Modesto Police Department, the MPD created an additional command post to be stationed at the East La Loma Park itself to, quote, 
organized the search and accommodate individuals who would come and give tips personally. The CP consisted of a trailer with computer and communications equipment. The unofficial volunteer command post, which had been at Lacey and Scott's Covina Avenue house, transferred over to the nearby Red Lion Hotel. According to CNN, quote, friends, family, and volunteers set up a command center at a nearby Red Lion Hotel to record developments and circulate information. Over 1,500 volunteers signed up to distribute information and to help search for her. On that day as well, the first iteration of the Lacey Peterson website was launched, and posters began popping up all over the area, along with blue and yellow ribbons. There is something interesting to be noted about the flyers that were handed out to raise awareness for Lacey. According to friends involved with the search in its early days, Scott explicitly said that he did not want the flyers to include pictures of Lacey with him, because he claimed that it was because he wanted the attention to solely be on Lacey. And to that, I simply say, sure, Jan. On the 26th, Scott was supposedly helping to set up more searches, and while he was doing that, he was also fielding calls from Amber. 14 of them, to be exact. Amber testified that it was because she was, quote, anxious to let him know that she'd received the Christmas gift that he had sent, and to basically say hi before his big travels over to Europe for the new year. I'm gonna wager that Scott wasn't too focused on Amber that day, because there was another, more pressing matter to attend to. The first official search of both the Covina Avenue house and of the warehouse, complete with search warrants. Now, Scott had been trying to get into his warehouse that afternoon, but it was being guarded by police, police who knew the search warrant was about to be handed down. When Scott finally got a hold of Detective Craig Grogan, he complained about this. He told Grogan that, quote, if you had asked me, I would have let you search, and followed up this statement by claiming that he was having, quote, real trust issues with the MPD, but also Brogan, Burkini, and Grogan in particular. What Scott didn't know, what Scotty didn't know, was that the reason the search warrant had been sought after by the MPD is that they already had reason to believe that there was some sort of cleanup going on. They, too, were having real trust issues. Grogan testified that Stacy Bo Boyers had told police about Scott's incessant vacuuming right in front of the washer and dryer, and that area of the house was one that Grogan was intent on having gone over by crime scene investigators. The day was basically not going well for Scott, and December 26th only got worse, because his father-in-law, Ron, wanted to follow up with his son-in-law from their conversation on December 24th, the one where he had remarked how odd it was that Scott had left to go fishing at 9.30, when prime fishing hours are much, much earlier in the morning. According to Ron's testimony, quote, I didn't talk to him for, I don't know, two or three days later. I believe it was the afternoon of the 26th. I wanted to ask him about his fishing trip to Berkeley. Well, I told him, I said, you know, I think your Berkeley fishing trip is a fishy story. If you did something else, did you have a girlfriend? Did you go see your girlfriend? I said, you better get it out now because if you don't, it's going to come out and you're going to look a lot worse. And Scott said no, turned around and walked away. 
What tangled web Scott Peterson weaves? I just got to say that. Starting at 5 p.m. on December 26th, the Covina Avenue house was handed over into police custody so that the search warrant could be executed. Scott's warehouse was also secured and placed into police custody for its own search. The protected search would be carried out starting on December 26th, and it continued through the 27th, something that Stacey Boyers and Lori Ellsworth later told police made Scott, quote, angry because, quote, he didn't like being taken out of his comfort zone. At 7.30, the search began, led by a detective, Rudy Skullketty, who had been named the crime scene manager by Detective Grogan. Their focus on the 26th was a search for forensic evidence and signs of a struggle. Skullketty assumed that the house had been, quote, cleaned up by Scott, so he instructed all who participated to, quote, look at baseboards, creases, lower portions of furniture. As one detective present for the search described it on the stand, quote, you're looking at the floor looking for any sign of blood. You're looking for any sign of tissue, broken fingernails. You are looking along the baseboard to see if you can find any kind of blood. The FBI was also brought in for this search because they had access to luminol testing to look specifically for blood spatter and other trace evidence sources that might have otherwise been cleaned up. As Skultetti testified, quote, the working arrangement was that they would search the area near the washer and the dryer and the living room area, in that immediate area. Then the Modesto PD would search the remainder of the residence. During the 26th search, Scott's F-150 truck and Lacey's Land Rover were taken into custody, as were two computers. On the 26th, Scott was processed and examined by Modesto police. As Detective Henry Hendy testified, this is what that process looked like, and what some of the possible pieces of evidence that they found were. Quote, it was myself, Detective Rick House, identification technician Denise Ducat, and we also had members of the FBI evidence team there as well. The first thing we did was we had photographs taken of the outside of the vehicle and the inside before we did anything. And then the very first thing that we did was I went in and collected some blood samples off of the vehicle. We knew that there was some blood there because Detective Rick House had done a cursory examination of the vehicle in the driveway. That's the very first thing that we do. And I collected the blood samples. After that, we start processing the interior of the vehicle, looking for items that we think have evidentiary value inside the cab. Then we move to the bed of the pickup truck and do that. At that point, once we've removed everything we thought at that point that had some sort of obvious or potential evidentiary value, we let the FBI forensic team go in there and do their thing. So let me, um, let me just make that very, very clear. There were blood samples found and collected from the vehicle. And, you know, it's odd that odd that Scott had already predicted the police would probably find blood there. Because he had inexplicably announced it to, of all people, Sandy Rickard, on December 24th, during the initial search for Lacey. Sandy Rickard is Sharon Rocha's best friend, so she had been with Sharon since the first moments of realizing that Lacey was missing. Sandy later testified to what an odd conversation, very one-sided as she made it out to be, that Scott had with her that night. Quote, When he came to speak to me, I was standing there by myself on the front lawn. He put up his hands and he said, I wouldn't be surprised if they find blood on my truck because I cut my hands all the time. I'm a hunter, I'm a fisherman, sportsman, outdoorsman. One of those terms that I don't recall, but something to that effect. 
he came up to me and I'm standing there by myself and I was perplexed why he said it. Interesting, truly, how Scott was already imagining why and where the police might find his own blood. I'll let you make of that what you will. But let's talk more about what MPD and Detective Hendy found in Scott's truck. Quote, In searching the glove box, we collected several receipts, collected a couple of fishing licenses. There was a hunting license in there as well. In the center console area of the vehicle in between the driver and the passenger seat, there was a console area that holds some receipts and stuff. We took some of those and some business cards. And on the in the bed of the pickup truck, we picked up a claw hammer and the chicken wire. We collected those items as well. We also collected some clothing from inside the vehicle. Clothing items that appeared to have been worn. We also found some bags in the pickup truck complaining, containing new clothing that didn't appear to have been worn at all. At the time that we processed a vehicle, I had noticed the red Pro Gardener claw hammer, things that I referred to in the back of the pickup truck. I noticed that there was a white powder cement-like mix on the claw hammer. Didn't realize the value of it at the time. Also saw what I thought were small little chunks of cement in the back of the pickup truck. Didn't realize that might have been evidentiary value in the case. It wasn't until after we served the search warrant at the warehouse that I thought those items might be significant. I also seen a receipt in the glove box for a cement product at Home Depot. At that point, I didn't realize it might be important. So I went back for the receipt and for the small chunks of cement that I had seen. Small, little pebbles to marble-sized chunks. Now, why the fuck do pebbles matter here, you might be asking. I'm happy to tell you. With, once again, Detective Hendy's help. Now, the main search of the warehouse took place on December 27th, led by Detective Hendy, who had been named the crime scene manager of the warehouse. During Hendy's testimony, the jury was shown the video taken of the warehouse that day, with Hendy narrating what exactly they were seeing. Here's what the jury was told, in a bit to help you also visualize what was being shown to them that day. Quote, you're looking at from the office area, where you would come out of the office door, looking to the northeast corner of the warehouse. You can see, obviously, a boat. It's a 14-foot game fisher aluminum boat. Behind that is a shelf unit, a bunch of tools and bottles, and you also see some fertilizer product stacked up there along the right corner. In the lower right-hand corner of that picture, you can see the right front center of the pull car or car trailer. And on top of that is some sort of portable pump machine. You're now looking at the center section of the boat, in between the second and third seat. There are three seats that ran the width of the boat, one in the front, one in the middle, and one in the back. You're now looking between the second and third. As you're looking forward to the north, or the corner of the screen, the upper top corner, that's the middle seat. Underneath the middle seat, where the metal bracket comes down and anchors to the boat, you can see the handles belonging to a pair of pliers. Next to that, you can see a portion of a shoestring. You can also see a red ink pen laying on the floor of the boat. You're now looking between the second middle seat to the right and the front seat to the left. Underneath the front seat are two seat cushions, flotation devices. Next to that is an oar. There is one oar in the boat. Next to the lower blue seat cushion is a homemade weight. It's made of cement. 
It's almost two-toned color and has a metal rebar that goes in the center and comes out kind of on the top, but sort of circular shaped. Next to that, you have a brown toolbox with fishing gear inside it. You're now looking at the front portion of the boat. And the front portion of the boat is a green nylon type bag. There is a rope that goes to the front bow, which was, I believe, eight to six to eight, 10 feet in length, presumably used to tie off the boat when it went to a dock or something. And next to that is a can, a red gas can next to the green bag. The pebbles, Hendy noticed, seemed to resemble the same material that had been noticed in the car. Material that Scott seemed to have purchased from Home Depot and fashioned into this anchor. An anchor that Scott later admitted to making in the warehouse. So why exactly was Scott making cement anchors? No one could really quite say. Over the next few days, a few things of note occurred. One, the reward money for information about Lacey increased up to $500,000 on December 28th, four days into the search for her. Two, various calls had been placed on the tip line, but none of them had been deemed credible, leading police to keep their ever-increasing focus on Scott razor sharp. And three, Sharon started to doubt Scott. On December 28th, Sharon asked Scott if they could be alone together so she could speak with him. Sharon testified that she tried several times to speak with Scott, but there was always something that came up. He always had another appointment or had to be someplace else. Then came the 28th. Sharon saw her chance. Quote, We were at the Red Lion Hotel, the volunteer center for a meeting, but we were interrupted constantly because they were ready to start the meeting. I attempted to ask him on December 28th, I want to ask you about what happened on the 23rd or the 24th. I actually walked up behind him, took him by the arm, and took him into the room. I told him I wanted to know exactly what happened to Lacey, what, what she was doing that morning. I asked him what she was doing when he left the house, and he told me that she looked so cute because she was sitting on her bench in front of the mirror, styling her hair the way Amy had shown her. This surprised Sharon because she had been led to believe by Scott that Lacey had actually gotten her hair cut by Amy Rocha the night before as well. So why would Lacey be messing with her hair if it was already done? Sharon couldn't recall if Scott told her anything else that day. And I have to wonder if it was because he was trying to seem busy or if he was trying to get away. It should be said also, Scott was meticulous about opening the volunteer center at 7 a.m., every day. He had his routine established. He'd arrive at 7 a.m., then promptly leave at 9.30, which is coincidentally the same time that he would finally allow members of the media to enter the volunteer rooms for the day. Scott did not like being in front of the media. To some, he claimed that it was because he wanted the focus to be on Lacey, while others said that Scott straight up did not want his face to be splashed across the media coverage. He often absconded from the center for the day, saying that he was going to be putting up flyers. Harvey Kempel, though, noticed otherwise. As he later testified, a lot of us would see one another on a day-to-day -day basis of looking and seeing one another putting up flyers. I had never seen Scott putting up flyers. But that one morning, I asked him, which direction are you heading? Well, I thought maybe I would see him, 
in a general vicinity sometime that day. And, and so I, he left, I left. It just so happened that I was leaving the parking lot, my pickup when I saw Scott, he turned, he went out of the red lion and said he was going to the paradise road area, which I know is in West Modesto from leaving the red lion. He would have to turn left to get in that direction. It just so happened when I saw him leaving, he turned right. And I thought, that's a little peculiar, but I didn't pay too much attention to it in the way I went the same direction thinking, well, gee, I was going to catch up with him and tell him it's back over in the other area. We wound up at the mall in Modesto, which is located on Sisk Avenue. And then he turned into the mall. It, It was early in the morning. The mall wasn't even open. And he just pulled into the parking lot. I thought it was strange that he was there. So I just pulled over to the side and and watched, thinking he was going to meet up with somebody else. Maybe, maybe they were going to canvas the whole mall area. 40, 45 minutes he sat there. He sat there and I sat there. I didn't know at that time. I wasn't thinking about that. That, my friends, most likely meaning Amber Fry. Because on December 29th, 2002, Amber Fry was finally clued in. Clued into just exactly her new beau was. Because he wasn't at all who he had told her that he was. Amber was pissed. She felt Scott was being off, that there was something going on. He hadn't been returning her calls as frequently. He'd made a stop in New York before going on to Paris like he had told her he planned. And he had generally been leading Amber to wonder what was really going on in their relationship. She told him as much on a phone call on December 27th. Quote, I was having trust issues in regards to his whereabouts and I apologized to him for feeling this way. He assured me not to, and that he should be more sensitive to my feelings, and that he should have been more considerate and called me. And he apologized for that. And I brought up our earlier conversation about him and I, that, about our relationship, and that, you know, why would he go through this trouble of telling me, you know, that he was monogamous, and there was nobody else, and all that to assure me that there was a future together. And again, he apologized for making me feel this way, and it was understandable. And he would work at being more sensitive to my needs. Even after having this phone call, Amber still felt unmoored with what was going on between them. She was still feeling like something was going on. Something was leaving her feeling like she couldn't trust Scott. So she decided to vent to some friends. On December 28th, Amber had picked up some photos, or dropped off as she later testified, quote, dropped off some photos of the Rite Aid, and I had called a friend of mine that wasn't in. And as I was leaving the store from dropping off the film, he returned my call and said he was home, and his roommate was home and to stop by. So I stopped by, and his roommate had addressed me to or about something or a conversation that I had had with my friend about some mistrust issues or some two things that had occurred between Scott and I in our different conversations. If that's a really confusing bit of testimony, 
let me break it up a little easier. Amber was discussing her concerns about Scott to her friend Richard Bird, a friend whose unnamed roommate was part of their conversation as a bit of a third party. Between the three people present, Amber explicitly stated who Scott was, last name and all, and what he was to her. Amber then heard from this friend, Richard, the very next night, December 29th, when she was attending a Sibley family birthday party, obviously with Sean Sibley. And Richard Bird dropped a bombshell. Amber Scott was the same Scott, the same Scott Peterson all over the media, whose pregnant wife had mysteriously gone missing just five days beforehand, and Lillo Modesto. What Amber Fry did next is one of the, frankly, most level-headed things someone could do when they discover their new boyfriend has been lying about their entire lives and is the husband of a missing pregnant woman. She called the Modesto Police Department. Literally, as Amber testified, quote, I immediately dialed the Modesto Police Department number that was provided for me. She continued saying, quote, a female dispatcher answered the phone and I wasn't sure exactly what to say. I said I was calling about a person and I wasn't sure if it was the same person and if they can confirm for me if it is. Then there were some delays of from the dispatcher. I gave the information that I had, his name, his birth date, his age type of business. I wasn't sure if it was the same Scott Peterson. So I was wanting a confirmation from them. And they asked what information I had. I said, well, if it, I, I don't know what information I can give to you unless you confirm to me it's the same person. And after some time, she finally did confirm that it was. And I proceeded to tell this woman that I was seeing Scott Peterson and he was telling me that he was in Paris or at Europe at the time and proceeded just to discuss our relationship basically to this dispatcher. By the next morning, Amber hadn't heard back from the detective that she was told would be calling her, so she called the tip line for a second time. And wouldn't you know it, that exact detective was walking past the dispatcher who answered Amber's second call. And Detective Burkini immediately took the phone from the dispatcher as he was watching the notes being transcribed from the call. When Burkini spoke with Amber over the phone, he testified that she provided this information to help confirm that they were, basically, talking about the same Scott Peterson. Quote, On December 5th, Scott told Amber that he lost his wife. On December 9th, he told her he lied to her about being married, and he lost his wife. Scott was going to Paris. The last night he spent with her was December 14th. He claimed he lived in Sacramento. The next day, he was going to Arizona the next day and flying out of SFL, that she spoke to Scott twice on Christmas Day and that he called her every day since Christmas. He said he was going to Boston to catch a flight to Paris. He missed his flight and would call her again at 7 o'clock, getting ready to board his flight. He would call her later to explain the same time difference. He was getting a European phone number, which would be forwarded to XYZ, XYZ, XYZ. They immediately set up a time to meet. That same day, in person, Amber divulged even more of what had transpired between her and Scott. According to Burkini's testimony, quote, she shared, she said that she met Scott November 20th, and he said he wasn't married at the time. 
later, about December 9th, she found out he was married and confronted him. And he told her that he had lost his wife and that this would be the first Christmas holiday without her. She said Scott was still calling her. She heard from him on the 25th, the 26th, the 27th, and 28th. He was telling her he was out of the country and he would be able to be with her more exclusively January 25th. She played a recorded phone message from Scott, which he made on December 16th, so that they could be certain it was the same Scott Peterson. It was obviously and definitively the same Scott Peterson. It was then that the MPD posed a question to Amber. How would she feel about recording conversations between herself and Scott? Again, Amber Fry did not fucking hesitate. She agreed. Of course, the most infamous of these phone calls happened that very next night, during the candlelight vigil held for Lacey on December 31st, New Year's Eve, when Scott called, claiming Happy New Year's from Paris, and instead the noise in the background was the vigil for his missing pregnant wife. Already, the vigil wasn't going well for Scott. He had refused to sit up front with the rest of the Rocha family, which created not great optics. There were also photographs taken of Scott during the vigil where he was spotted smiling widely, lighting a niece, lighting a candle with his niece. And another, Scott was out and out laughing. It did absolutely nothing to sway an already suspicious public onto his side. Days later, on January 3rd, 2003, Detective Grogan confronted Scott with a photo. A photo that Amber had faxed to the police, clearly showing her with Scott. Scott went into denial mode, telling Grogan that it wasn't possible it was him in the photo, that he hadn't dated anyone since college, certainly not since he had married Lacey. Grogan tried to get Scott to admit to the affair, but that was a story that Scott was sticking with denial. As all of this questioning was taking place, the searches for Lacey were still ongoing and becoming ever more advanced. Search teams were sent out to Merced, Tuolumne, Calaveras, San Joaquin, Alameda, and Mariposa counties. The Berkeley Marina was searched a number of times. Even mines out in Lagrange were investigated. But it all turned up the same result nothing could be found. There was no sign of Lacey. The searches continued, the investigation carried on, and even Amber's involvement with Scott via taped phone calls didn't stop. Not even after Scott admitted to Amber that he was, in fact, married to the missing Modesto pregnant woman. A month went by without any sign pointing to what could have happened to Lacey. It was already the perfect storm of a media maelstrom. A pretty, well-liked pregnant woman goes missing under mysterious circumstances on Christmas Eve. There's no sign of her for an entire month. Of course, it's a story that's going to send the media wild. Then, Amber Fry's name got leaked, and the media went insane. The thing that's interesting to note about Amber's January 24th, 2003 press conference is that the Roches had known about her for over a week. 
and they'd known that Scott had been having an affair with her. The Modesto police approached the Roches on January 15th with the proof about Scott and Amber, and it's safe to say, the entire case changed from that day forward. After their meeting with police, Sharon decided that the volunteer center at the Red Lion should close permanently. It was a decision that they followed through on the next day, January 16th. There was also a hell of a phone call between Sharon and Ron with Scott the next day. Sharon, well, since you've managed to lose all of my confidence in you, what I want to know is, where's my daughter at, Scott? Scott, I wish I knew, Mom. I wish I knew where she is. Sharon, yeah, you do know. You do know where she is, and I want you to tell me. Where is Lacey and her baby? Where did you put them? You killed my daughter, didn't you? Scott, no, I didn't, Mom. Sharon, yes, you did, Scott, and I want to know. Just let me bring my daughter home, okay? That's all I want. I don't want anything else from you. I want you to tell me where my daughter is. I want to be able to bury my daughter. Now, would you tell me where she is, Scott? At this point, Ron interjected. Ron, if you've got anything left in you, Scott, you better tell us where she is. Scott, I wish I knew, Ron. We all want her back. Ron, no, the police have, the police are going to be seeing you before long, Scott, and your world is crumbling. Scott, I don't know how you can just, I don't know how you can do this. Just keep saying, we've seen pictures. We've seen other things, so you're in trouble. We want her back. Given the tone of that call, (laughs) I'm honestly shocked anyone made it to late January before the bombshell of Amber was dropped on the public at large. But on January 24th, the Roaches publicly and finally denounced Scott, claiming that they were withdrawing their support from him, as they now believed he was, in fact, involved with Lacey's disappearance. Brent, Lacey's older brother, put the family's feelings succinctly, quote, I trusted him and I stood by him in the initial phases of my sister's disappearance. However, Scott has not been forthcoming with information regarding my sister's disappearance. I'm only left to question what else he may be hiding. Shortly after the Roche's press conference, and I mean literally shortly because it was the same day, Amber's own press conference occurred. Pictures of Amber and Scott had already made it into the National Enquirer at the beginning of January, but now, now the media was actually paying attention to the dish rag that is the National Enquirer, and they wanted a name, and they wanted to know everything. Fearing for her own safety, Amber agreed to go public with the police on her side. Visibly shaking, Amber read out the following statement to the press, quote, I met Scott Peterson, November 20th, 2002. I was introduced to him. I was told he was unmarried. Scott told me he was not married. We did have a romantic relationship. When I was discovered he was involved in the Lacey Peterson disappearance case, I immediately contacted the Modesto Police Department. There's just something really poetic about Amber coming forward one day before January 25th the day that Scott had told her that they could be together more exclusively. After Amber spoke, the MPD press release 
made these comments. Quote, Amber Fry had contacted the MPD on Monday, December 30th, 2002. She met with detectives and gave the information about the relationship with Scott Peterson. And with that, Scott Peterson became one of the most suspicious men in the country, especially after he gave this gem of an interview to Diane Sawyer on January 27th. Quoting Scott, Our relationship, mine and Amber, that is inappropriate, was inappropriate, and I owe a tremendous apology to everyone, including Amber and her family. This should have been brought forth by me. Diane Sawyer, when did you tell police? Scott, I told the police immediately. It was that first night. Diane, you told them about her. Your wife found out about it? Scott, I told my wife early in December. Diane, did it cause a rupture in your marriage? Scott, it was not a positive, obviously inappropriate, but it was not something that we weren't dealing with. Diane, was there a lot of arguing? Scott, no, no, I can't say that, that... Even she was okay with the idea, but it wasn't anything that would break us apart. Diane, there wasn't a lot of anger. Scott, nope. Diane, do you really expect us to believe that an eight-month pregnant woman finds out her husband is having an affair and is casual about it, is accommodating with it, makes peace with it? Scott, well, no one knows our relationship but us. At peace with it, not happy about it. Diane, why did you tell her? Scott, it was the right thing. Diane, and did you see her again after you told her these things? Scott, yes. Diane, you saw her but didn't tell her. Didn't tell Amber. Scott, no, no, definitely not. The thing that's really interesting here is that that whole thing started off with a lie. Scott did not tell the police about Amber or any other affairs, quote, that first night. So how then are we to believe any of the other statements he makes following that? How do we believe any of it? Days later, following discussions of Scott selling the Covina home and trading in Lacey's car, all just over a month since she'd last been seen, Scott received a phone call from Detective Grogan. Shockingly, not Amber, since despite Amber coming forward, Scott still maintained a relationship with her, at least via calling her incessantly for conversations that were consistently listened on by police. Grogan listened, though, on this day as Scott voiced his frustration and woes about the media hounding him, how the media, they weren't helping at all. Grogan advised Scott not to do anything to hurt himself. He asked several times if Scott was all right. And then he hit him with this. Grogan. You and I both know what happened to Lacey. Scott, you know what happened to her? Grogan, we both do. Let's be serious with one another. Scott, Craig, you know what happened to her? You know where she is? Grogan, we know where we are looking for her. I think we're going to find her over there in that bay. Just a matter of time. Grogan was right about one thing. It really was only a matter of time. On April 13th, 2003, a couple was spending the breezy spring day by taking their dog for a walk along the shoreline of the Richmond Point Park, just a short distance north of Berkeley. 
Michael Luby and his wife were enjoying their late afternoon Sunday walk through the slightly marshy area, looking for a place to take their 10-year-old Weimaran or swimming. When they stumbled upon something. A body. A small one. As Luby testified, he knew right away what it was. Quote, It was a body of a small baby. Alina Maria Gonzalez was at the Point Isabel dog park with a few family members and five of the family dogs the next day, that Monday at just before noon. They often let their dogs run off leash down by the water, and that day was no different. Until they noticed some of the dogs running away. As she testified, quote, two of them ran away. We started following the two dogs that got away, just a few yards further north from where we were. At first, we thought it was like a big waterlogged animal, like a big seal or something. Then we realized it was a human body. Less than 24 hours apart, less than a mile apart, the remains of a fetus and the remains of an adult woman had been found. Lacey and Connor had finally been found. And that's when things really started to hit the fan. As always with the series, I am leaving you on a cliffhanger, but not without the safety net of some hashtag questions to consider. So let's start. Why couldn't Scott keep his story straight about what exactly he did on December 24th? Why was he waffling back and forth between telling people that he went golfing or he went fishing? Why was Scott so weirded out by his phone call with Karen's service? Why did he make her tell a police officer about how she had found Mackenzie? Why was Scott so adamant from the start that Lacey must have gone on that walk that morning, despite knowing that she had at least several other things, like going to the grocery store, on her list of to-dos? Why this walk? What was the deal with the scrunched-up rug that caught police officers' eyes for how out of place it was in the otherwise spotless home? Was there something more to it? Why was Scott unable to answer police officers' questions about how he spent his day during the first walkthrough that he participated in? What made Scott swear out of frustration after one of the first walkthroughs of the house, as one of the first responding police officers testified happened? Why was Scott so concerned about the police possibly dinging the Land Rover while they were conducting a crucial search for clues about his missing wife? What did Scott mean when he said that the warehouse didn't have electricity? Was this a lie? And if so, what exactly was he lying about and why? When exactly did the facts arrive on December 24th? Was it actually from New Jersey? Or was the timestamp of 11.15 a.m. correct, and it was all just a smoking gun that Scott tried to cover up with a lie about where it had arrived from? Why was Scott so uncertain about what time he got to the marina? Why was he concerned about boat residue being mistaken for gun residue? Why did Scott say that he would take a polygraph and then refuse to do so? How was Scott able to keep up his lies about traveling for the holidays to Amber so easily, even as he was surrounded by family members? Why was he so obsessive about vacuuming in front of the washer dryer? 
why did Scott ask Detective Burkini about using cadaver dogs one day into his wife's disappearance? Was Scott so insistent that the flyers for Lacey not include pictures of him so he could protect his own identity to maintain his affair with Amber? Why did Scott make the strange, unprompted remark to Sandy Rickard about how he wouldn't be surprised if police found blood in his truck? Why was Scott making cement anchors? Why did Scott refuse to let the media into the volunteer center until 9.30 a.m., the exact time that he usually left the center? Why was he so reluctant to talk to the press? What was Scott doing at the mall the day that Harvey Kemple followed him from the volunteer center? Why exactly did Sharon want to close the Red Line Volunteer Center after finding out about Scott's affair? Was that the nail in the coffin? Was she that convinced that her daughter was already dead? Why did the Roches wait until January 24th to denounce Scott when they found out about the affair on the 15th? Why in the hell did Scott still call Amber all the time? even after she publicly came forward with the police's support. Surely he knew that she was working with them by then. Or is and was Scott Peterson really that fucking stupid? Why did Scott lie on national television to Diane Sawyer by saying that he had told police about Amber during his first interview on December 24th? Did Lacey have any idea about Amber? like Scott claimed that she did. Scott Peterson is clearly comfortable spinning bold-faced lies to any audience. So my final question today is this. What else was he lying about? Next week, we'll wrap up our story about the disappearance and murder of Lacey and Connor Peterson. We'll discuss the autopsies of both Connor and Lacey, so just consider this your trigger warning for that already because it really does get pretty gruesome. We'll discuss the bizarre events leading up to Scott's arrest, his actual arrest, what played out leading up to his trial, and of course, we will deep dive into the trial of the state versus Scott Peterson. And just where things stand now, 18 years later, after Lacey and Connor were finally found. Thanks for listening to today's episode. If you're liking what you're hearing, please go leave a five-star review and rating for the show over on Apple Podcasts. If you're interested in joining the DAW Patreon crew, you can head on over to patreon.com slash darkasshellpodcast to see what level might be up your alley of interest. There's a new Patreon level, and it only costs $1. You can support DAW and the work that I do here for just a dollar a month and get yourself shouted out in an episode and have access to exclusive content on the Patreon. This month has been crazy with the holidays, so I just want to say thank you for your patience, but the Da Spooky crew can expect their exclusive extra episode to drop this week now that the Christmas festivities have passed. The Wine and Weirds gang can also expect their live stream event to take place this week, and it's a truly weird and timely topic that we're discussing this month, so stay tuned to the Da Instagram to find out what it is and when it is. While you're waiting for next week's episode to drop, you can find Dark as Hell on Instagram at Dark as Hell Podcast, all one word, and on Twitter at Dark as Hell Pod. Again, that's all one word. And if you want to get in touch with me, you can email your comments or hashtag questions of your own over to me at darkasshellpodcast at gmail.com 
or you can head over to darkasshellpodcast.com. Thanks again for listening. And I'll catch you back here next week, ready to stay dark as hell all over again.